This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Hallelujah. Praise God. I love that song. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Praise God. All right. Good evening, everybody. Praise God. Hope you've had a good week so far. Um, today I want to continue on our series concerning who moves first, and it's a series intended to address the general idea of God's disposition and active working in trying to save humanity and what humanity's role is in salvation, whether active or passive, or to what extent humanity's efforts are um, concerned, or to what extent humanity's efforts can have a say. Praise God. So we're just going to continue. Um, let me not bother going through so much of recaps. Amen. So first John chapter four. First John chapter four. I want to read from verse seven. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his son and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God loved us. So who moved first or who moves first really is God. Without any doubt, all believers, all Christians will agree that God moves first. Man cannot save himself, and it is God that has to reach out to man and save the man. God is the one that moves first. Having agreed on that, which is very difficult to dispute, the next question is, does man move back? That is the real question. Does man move back? Does man have the capacity to move? Or is man completely and totally helpless in moving and it is only God that moves? Does man also move? Praise God. Are we together? Let's jump to verse 19 of that same chapter. And it says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. I think from all that we have been looking at and all that we have been seeing, I believe, I think it is the 
the a plain reading of scripture and unbiased reading of scripture would lead one to agree that God moves first, but that man also has to move towards God in return. And man has the ability to move towards God. And man also has the ability to reject God's advances. I think it's pretty clear. So because God loves us, we also have to love him first. Um, Let's check John's account of the Gospels. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If we start reading from verse 12, it will go something like this. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now the question is, the people who believe, do they have the ability to reject that gospel? One, is that grace irresistible? That's what we're really asking. Is that grace irresistible? Can the people that that invitation has been extended to, can they reject it? And how many people was that invitation extended to? Was it everybody or only to some people? Was that invitation extended to everybody or only to some people? And is that invitation such that a person can choose to reject it or not? Let's go on. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we know eternal life is by faith. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that begins to tell us something. If atonement was truly limited, if Jesus died for only some people, then that means that Jesus is either lying or Jesus is someone whose words don't, should not be taken seriously. Right? right? Because Jesus says that he, he, did not send his son, he did not send his son to condemn the world. So that means that Jesus did not come into the world um, with the desire that any man be condemned. But the idea that atonement is limited, that Jesus died for only some people, implies that Jesus, ab initio, condemned some people without their imputes, irrespective of whether they believed or not. Without anything that they did, Jesus just created them to condemn them. It doesn't, it doesn't follow, does it? Praise God. Look at it. It now says, Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we are saved by belief, right? But look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be what? Exposed. And this, this brings to my brothers Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we talked about during the retreat yesterday, right? 
that what we begin to see, the pattern that we begin to see, is that it's not that the evidence is not sufficient, but it is that men have chosen darkness. And by reason of that darkness, are making excuses for themselves. But Paul says that men are without what excuse. Men don't have any excuse. The evidence is good enough. The justification for what we believe, you know, is enough from the evidence that God has provided already. It's enough. The evidence can't get any better than this. The evidence can't get any better without it turning into some kind of divine tyranny or turning it into a kind of bringing God down to our level. The evidence is good enough. That's why all human beings at every point in time in every civilization have naturally gravitated to interpret the evidence in that direction. It's because the evidence is good enough. It's not because they didn't know better. It's not because the people of old and the Greeks and the Romans and our own ancestors were all stupid people that became that believed in gods because they were stupid. It's not because they were stupid. It's because when they are created and put into the world, when they look at all the evidence, the evidence leads them to believe that somebody is behind everything. Church out together. So it's not because they were stupid. Hallelujah. So men have chosen darkness because of light. And so this is what now tells us is that Jesus, Jesus now suggests to us here that man has the capacity to reject that invitation. Man has the capacity to reject God's outstretched arm. So that grace is not irresistible. It can be resisted. That's what Jesus is saying here. It can be resisted. That grace is not irresistible. Men can resist it because they love darkness. Church out together. I want to show you something. I want to show you a parable that will really help to explain this well. But before I explain it, let's go to Mark chapter 4. So I can get you to understand something. I don't think I've taught you guys that before. Mark chapter 4. So concerning parables, I want to show you a parable. Before I show you the parable, I want to show you the purpose of parables. Mark chapter 4 verse 11. This was after he told them the parable of the sower. He now says, he told them the secret of the kingdom of God. And he told them, rather, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything said is in parables. Let's start from verse 10. Sorry. Verse 10 says, When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And then he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that, he now begins to quote the scriptures and says, They may, they may be ever seen, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? And then he goes on to explain. It has been said, and I've heard it said, that people believe that um, the parables don't, don't pertain to Christians, don't pertain to believers, because of what Jesus said here. And it's a very terrible reading. It's a bad reading of this, of, of this scripture. So what Jesus is saying here, obviously, is that there is the... King, there is the secret of the kingdom of God, right? That has been given to God's disciples, thus you and I. And then he now says that everything is said to some people in parables. So that means that what parables are, parables are not the secret of the kingdom. 
Parables are the mode of the communication of the secret of the kingdom. Do you understand that? Parables are the mode of the communication to the secret of the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying that to the discerning disciples, you do not need parables for you to understand the secret of the kingdom because it has been given to you, isn't it? And the reason why the, the parable has been given to the outsiders is to increase their condemnation, in quotes. So there are certain people who have chose darkness instead of light and have decided in their minds that they will not understand the gospel. And because they are without excuse, Jesus gives them parable for them to really understand it. But even with seeing, they will not see. And in hearing, they will not understand. So that on that day, they will be without any excuse to say that they did not understand the secrets that were delivered to them. So parables are God's, Jesus' way of bringing eternal truth to these people so that they can understand. But the disciple that is descending does not need the parable for him to understand it because he has descended from God's word. Do you understand that? But even then, Jesus still went ahead to explain the parable. Why? Because the disciples did not understand it. He says, when you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any parable? Then he goes ahead to, understand, to explain it. So, believers don't really need it. For example, as you are now, you don't really need the parable to explain salvation for you. You don't really need the parable of the ten sheep, of the hundred sheep and one missing, for you to understand the love of God, do you? It has been made clear in the epistles. It does not mean that the truth that that parable communicates is not useful. And that's why they are outsiders, that that parable helps them to understand. And those that are in rebellion, they will hear the parable and still not understand, despite the fact that the parable has brought it down to their level. Do you guys understand that? So, people have said that the messages of parables don't pertain to believers. That's not true. It is the mode of the communication that is not necessary for a discerning disciple. That's two different things. The message is the same. The secret of the kingdom is the same. It is that secret that the mode of communication, the, the mode of communication, the literary device called analogies, called allegories, called parables, is being used to communicate eternal truths. So the eternal truth pertains to believers. It is the mode of communication that is not necessary for a man who is discerning already. Do you understand that? So it is not to say that the Jesus parables don't pertain to us. The truths of those parables are of those parables are eternal. They pertain to us. They pertain to us. The truths of those scriptures, if they did not pertain to us, Jesus will not now go on and explain to them. Do you understand that? After they now said they don't understand, Jesus now took time to now explain it because the truth was necessary for them. Are we together? Do you guys understand that? Right, so Matthew chapter 22. So, there's a secret of the kingdom, in quotes, that Jesus has Jesus communicated here about God's invitation to man. And I would like to um, use it to teach this evening. Matthew chapter 22, from verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So the king sent an invitation to certain people that he, he chose. Verse 4, then he sent some servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle, have been butchered and everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. 
and the king was enraged and he sent his army and, he, and destroyed those murderers and burnt their cities. So there were some people that he sent an invitation to, but they ignored, and then those that did not ignore now killed his messengers. Who are those? Who, who, who is he speaking of, obviously? The Jews. The Jews. <laughs> yeah, there are many parables like this, not just like the parable of the vine, vineyard, and he gave certain people his vineyard to treat, and then he sent his son from the far land. He sent people ahead, many people, and then they killed those people, and then he sent his son, and they killed his son. It's the same idea. So he picked some particular people, just like the Jews, who he foreknew, who he gave the oracles. He picked them and gave them an invitation for his son, and they killed his servants, the way they killed Jeremiah, and killed all the other prophets. Did they kill Jeremiah? Yes, have you? I can't remember. I can't, let's just move on. Let me, let me not say um, Let's go on, right? So he was enraged and he killed them and all that. Then verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I have invited did not deserve to come. Do you see that? So go, just, just like you're reading the book of Romans, like Apostle Paul using Romans to explain what Jesus is saying here. Jesus really dumbed it down. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Look at it. Anyone that you want, find. So that the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with what? Guests. So who has he now invite, um, extended the invitation to? Everybody. Everybody that can be found. Everybody. So the invitation is not limited to some people. The invitation is towards everybody. But look at the interesting thing. It now says, but when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing the wedding clothes. Then he, ha- then he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants to tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of feet. For many are invited but few are what? Chosen. So, despite the fact that he invited everybody, the invitation, you have to respond to it in a particular way. There is a mode of dressing. There is a dress code. And what is that dress code? Faith in Jesus. So, despite the fact that the invitation is given to everybody, you can still choose to respond to the proper dress code. And what is the dress code? Faith in Jesus. And the guy that did not respond appropriately was thrown out into gnashing of teeth. Church out together. Do you see that? Then he now ends and now says, For many are called. If you check another version, they say many are invited. You don't say many are invited, but you know, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. So that means that when it says many, that means that everybody has been called. Keep that in mind. When we begin to read all the places where it talks about those he called, many are what? Called, but few are what? Chosen. The being chosen there is based on what? Your response to the invitation. So it's not like some people were chosen unconditionally. Do you understand that? It's not like as if some people were chosen unconditionally. That being chosen is responding to the invitation. So those that were chosen were those that were invited and then they responded to the invitation. Do you guys understand this? Do you see how clear it is? Many have been called, but few are what? Chosen. The being chosen there is not an unconditional thing. The servants did not go to the streets and pick some people and choose only some people. They called everybody. 
Then those that now answered the call were those that were what? Chosen. Do you see that? Guys, you understand that? So when you now read Ephesians chapter 1, we'll now read Ephesians chapter 1 now, again, with this clear understanding. Look at verse 4. For he, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in him. So, he, you know, um, without the understanding, one would think that he chose us means he chose some people unconditionally. So you can see what the choosing is now, based on the scriptures. The choosing is those that responded to the invitation. So further, but look at verse 5. He says, he predestined us for adoptions to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So he predestined us for adoption. So that means that God before time predestined that people will be adopted into Christ. Those that respond to it are those that are now the elect. Those that are what? Chosen. That invitation is to everybody. Look at, if you, if you scroll down and look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, in him we were also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And like I said earlier in two previous services, many people read these words predestined, um, um, predestined, chosen. They read it with the presupposition of their own language of believing that predestined means that somebody has set your life to be in a particular way. No. If you go on, it now says, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So, we were chosen because we who were the first put our hope in him. Verse 13, and you also were included when you heard. So, you see that you were included when you did what? Heard. You were included when you heard. So, the inclusion happened after you heard the message of the gospel of your salvation and you believed then you were marked in him with the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Touch out together. So, people that are chosen, the elect, are those that responded to that invitation that was given to everybody. They became included in the elect when they now believed, when they placed their hope in him. So, after placing your hope in him and you have entered what he planned before time began, when you say, I am God's elect. God chose me before time began. You are not wrong. But that does not mean you are saying he picked you unconditionally. Do you understand that? When you respond to something that God planned before time began, because you put your faith in him, and you say to yourself, or you say to someone like you, you are the elect, and God chose you before time began, that statement is not a comment on God's unconditional predestination. It is a comment on what God planned before time began and how you responded to it. Church out together. So, who moves first? God moves first, and man has to what move towards God. God moved towards man, and then man has to move towards God. God moves towards man, and then man has to move towards God. And man has the ability to reject God's advances. This is very clear. Look at um, Acts chapter 13. Look at what Apostle Paul said to the Jews. 
And it's very funny that that's actually the same verse 48. is what people used to assume that God chose some people unconditionally. But if you read Acts chapter 13, after he had preached the gospel to them and everything. Um, look at verse 46. He says, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So Paul, Paul and Barnabas put it to them. They rejected God's advance. They rejected God's advance and they, they, they are the ones that consider themselves unworthy of eternal life. So their unworthiness was not an unconditional thing that God set, but rather as a result of their own rejection of the gospel. So when we now go to verse 48, it now says, Then the Gentiles heard this, and they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It cannot be that that means that some people were appointed unconditionally. After he has just said that people were the ones that chose just two verses before, that people were the ones that chose to reject it. No. Rather, God had appointed now that apart from the Jews, all men can now believe. So even the Gentiles were now able to believe. And so God had appointed that even the Gentiles would be able to receive the gospel. And so those Gentiles were the ones that believed. So when he says again that all who were appointed, all who, who were the who? The Gentiles for eternal life now what? Believed. Hallelujah. No presuppositions. Context is king. Hallelujah. But this begs a very important question that I have to, I have to guess have to be aware of, you know, scholarship. That's our thing. It begs two important questions. So, the first question it begs is that, just like John Calvin said, if this is true, it begins to raise some philosophical problems about what we have um, axiomatically believed about God. One of the problems it brings is what then do we say about God's sovereignty? If God is God's sovereignty, if God is sovereign, how can this be the case? That man can decide not to do what God wants. Because it is God's desire that all men be saved. But men can decide not to do what God wants. How do you account for God's sovereignty? Let me use examples that really get to your mind. That means that theoretically, even though God has said he wants all men to be saved, it is possible that most men or even all men will not be saved because it's their choice. So does that not render God impotent? Does that not render God to lack sovereignty? And John Calvin said that the alternative to um, to tulip is, un- is either God lacking sovereignty or universalism. Because it's all about God's sovereignty. So it either means that God in his sovereignty has made everybody saved. Or God is not sovereign at all. And we, and that critic comes up a lot. If you read all from Dr. Um, God's articles, and it's always there. That's, the, that's the major criticism. That means you are saying that God is not really the boss. You know, you hear um, those guys say things like him. Um, you cannot make God the Lord. God is Lord. He makes himself the Lord. The moment that you have to make him the Lord, then he's not the Lord. You are the Lord and all those kinds of things. So it's more of a philosophical response. It's not really a scriptural problem. If you look through the scriptures, you see that that philosophical question in quotes is not directly responded to because it's not considered a problem. 
So it's more of a philosophical question. And there's a philosophical answer also, which is very clear. God's sovereignty is not reduced by the fact that he has a hierarchy of values in this world. It doesn't mean that he has it doesn't mean that his sovereignty has been taken care of. In fact, it even it further shows his sovereignty. He is the one that in his sovereignty decided that man can be free to reject him or not. So everything that happens within the ambit of man's agency is the manifestation of his sovereignty. Do you understand that? It's God that decided that some men can reject. So even if all men, all men reject, all men rejected because God in his sovereignty made it to be like that. If God wanted to make it that all men must believe without having free will, he could do it also because he's sovereign. But he chose to do it like this. So anything that happens based on the way he did it is still under the ambit of his sovereignty. For example, I'm the Lord in my house, in my home. I am sovereign, in quotes, right? Because in real life, I'm not really sovereign. Amen? But let's assume I'm sovereign in my house. And I see and I make some rules that my children can play anywhere they like in the house. And I open all the doors to them and say, you can pray anywhere they like. If my, my, one of my children now falls somewhere and injures themselves, and I say, okay, it is, I don't want my children to fall and injure themselves, isn't it? I don't want my children to fall and injure themselves. But after I open the house to them, I say, you can play anywhere, and the child falls and injures his or herself, right? To now say, because you don't want your child to fall and the child has fallen, it means that you're not really the boss in the house. No. Do you understand that? Even though I don't want my child to fall, I'm the one that also said she can, he or she can do whatever they like. And if they fall, it's still because I'm the boss. Do you guys understand that? Praise God. You guys look lost. Let me say it again. The fact that I don't want my child to fall in my house and she falls does not mean I'm not the boss in the house. Because I am still the boss. Amen. So all the things that happen within the ambit of man's moral agency are all manifestations of how God would have things be. So God is still sovereign. Hallelujah. The problem is that people often think of sovereignty as being an obsessive, compulsive narcissist. That everything must happen exactly in a particular way. No. I can decide that a set of outcomes are the way I want things to happen. Sovereignty is not only when I say, you, only move your hand and move your leg. Sovereignty also is, dance anyhow you want. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty is not, you must not talk. You must only move and take your step one by one, one by one. Don't take any step unless I say so. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty is, don't make any move unless I say so. Can I carry my hand? Yes. Can you carry your hand? No. Can you move one leg? Yes. Can you move one hand? No. That's sovereignty. But sovereignty is also do whatever you like. You understand that? So I don't, I don't see that as a problem. I don't see that as a problem. The fact that God gave human agency. In fact, it even shows how far God is from man. 
shows that God is not really human made. How God is able to give certain entities moral agency and still be king. I think that is the real sovereignty. I think a sovereignty that wants to be an obsessive compulsive narcissist is an insecure sovereign. That's what I feel. I think it's an insecure sovereign. I think a sovereign that is secure enough to create creations with moral agency is a truly sovereign God. Your, your, your endless creativity is not spectacular when you tell people exactly what to do. Endless creativity is when you tell people to do whatever they like and they still end up entering your purpose. That's real endless creativity. That is what you call, what, is, what it means to be in eternity. Hallelujah. So, that's that. There's a second issue. The second issue is, is the issue of God's omniscience. And we see some of it in the scriptures, and I will address it now. The second issue is the issue of God's omniscience. If God is God, based on the way we have described God's invitation to everybody and all that, it makes it sound like as if God does not know since we are the ones that decide to respond or not. God does not know exactly those that will be saved and those that will not be saved. And the classical Armenian sense was like that. So then the Calvinists had the, the reformed guys had the field day bashing that idea. Because it made it sound like as if, so since we said predestination is in the adoption, what God wanted to do, the way the classical Armenians put it is that, so it is the body of Christ that God ordained and predestined. This is kind of saying the same thing two different ways, but let me not go too deep philosophically, right? So it's like he said, um, so the, the way they put it is, so it's the body that was preordained. But the body is not anybody. Anybody that believes the gospel and joins the body has entered that preordination. And anybody that comes out is not saved. Do you understand? So people that enter it, enter what is ordained. So what God has preordained is that there will be a group of people, in quotes, that will be saved. So you can choose to join that group or not join the group. At the end of the day, there will always be a group of people that will be saved. Do you understand? But that makes it sound like as if God does not know those that will be saved and those that will not be saved. It's like God just created human beings and um, he doesn't know what will happen. And that tells that's a problem because if God is truly omniscient, the idea of omniscience is that there's nothing that escapes God and there's nothing that God does not know about. So how can God know all things and yet not know those that will be saved? And so if God knows all things and knows those that will be saved, how can we now say he's not the one that picked those that will be saved? Do you guys understand what I just said now? If God knows all things, right? It means that he knows those that will be saved. If he knows those that will be saved, how can we say he's not the one that picked those that will be saved? If you now say he's not the one that picked those that will be saved, then you have to admit that he does not know those that will be saved. And if you now say God does not know those that will be saved, you now say that God is not truly omniscient. And then that definition of God is problematic because God is the greatest maximally entity. So there was a guy called Louis, Louis de Molina. was a French Jesuit priest, a Catholic priest. We really need to appreciate the Catholics. You see this uh, Protestant thing of looking down on Catholics. You need to respect them. So, he is the one that now began to explain something called, and today it has become the third major, the third major view or school of thought concerning this whole thing of who, who God must find. It's called Molinism. 
And Molinism believes, and this is the idea of Molinism. Molinism believes that God is truly omniscient. God is truly omniscient in the, fe- in the sense that, number one, God knows all necessary things, all logical facts, all necessary facts in this world. God knows them. For example, God knows 2 plus 2 plus 2. God knows that there's no such thing as a, as a married bachelor. God knows that there's no such thing as a square circle. All necessary facts in this world, God knows them. Two, God knows all things that will happen based on what he has um, decided will happen. So there are some things that God has decided will happen. For example, God created the earth. He decided he would create the earth. So he knew the earth was coming based on the fact that he willed that it will come. Do you understand that? God, had, God knows that Samuel will come one day because God had willed that Samuel will come. So based on the things that God made, God has decided to do, God knows the things that he has decided to do that will happen. But there are some things also that God did not make them happen, but God knows they will happen because of his middle knowledge. That is knowledge of counterfactuals. What that means is God did not make some things happen, but he knows that they will happen because he's the one that knows people. Do you understand that? So there are some things that God did not make happen, but um, he knows they will happen because he, he, he knows his creation very well. An example I like to give is that my wife is not omniscient, but if you ask my wife now, if you give Samuel 10,000 naira to go out to buy food, what will Samuel buy? She knows what I will go and buy. She's not the one making me go out buy it, but because of her knowledge of me, which is all based on experience, she knows the kind of thing that I will go and buy. And she would say it, and she will be correct. If my daughter runs in here now, I can accurately predict what she will do the moment she comes in because I know her by experience. Now imagine the creator of the universe that knows everything. He knows what you will do despite your free knowledge. One of the very, very good examples is in the book of Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Let's read it. <clears throat> so we see a lot of examples like this, but this is just one. Matthew 11. Verse 21. Okay, let's, let's start from verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Can you see that? A lot of people saw miracles and they did not repent. So this idea of God needs to bring some more evidence, some more miraculous evidence for us people to believe the gospel is not true. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. So you see this knowledge of counterfactual. He says if. So God knew what would have happened in Tyre and Sidon if certain things were done to them. But it didn't happen like that. So God knows what you would do if so-so-so thing happens to you. God knows what Samuel would do if so-so-so things happen to you. God knows what Sheye would do if so-so-so things happen to you. So that is the knowledge of counterfactual. So because God knows you are a free moral agent, he knows your reaction under every given kind of circumstance. So that means that all the possibilities, that's why God is the eternally present. That's what it means for God to be in eternity. He's in eternal presence. So that means that all the possible scenarios of all the things that can happen to you, God knows what you will do in all of them. And by reason of that, God knows every outcome that will happen. Do you understand that? So based on that, God's sovereignty or God's omniscience is untouched in the fact that people are free 
in their agency, yet God knows all things. So the issue of God's foreknowledge is untouched. Like I said, the two problems are the issue of God's sovereignty and the issue of what? God's foreknowledge. So we address the issue of God's sovereignty, and then the issue of God's foreknowledge is the same. Right? Because God knows everything that every man will do based on all the possible scenarios that will happen to any man. So in that sense, God is still omniscient. There are a lot of deep philosophical arguments and we don't need to go there in church. Praise God. Right? But, you know, and I think that is sound. I think that is sound. I think God knew what Peter would do if certain things happened to him. God knew what um, Judas Iscariot would do, even though he's not the one that made Judas Iscariot to be like that. God did not make him unto perdition, but he knew before time began that someone would do it. So do you understand that? He knew that Satan would enter somebody, and he knew that that person would do a certain thing. That is omniscience. From the time of Moses, he knew what the Israelites would do when they get to Canaan and they become comfortable, and he warned them he warned them, so they are without excuse. He told them, when you get to the land of Canaan and become comfortable, don't start following these idols. Don't let your king start doing this. Don't let your king start doing that. He knew that they would do it, and they still did it. Hallelujah. Because he has the knowledge of all counterfactuals. Praise God. So this now makes sense of scriptures like First Peter chapter 1. So this is another, you know, people tend to mix up God's foreknowledge. And look at First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood. So if this is read without understanding the, you know, the scriptures, it will it assume that they were chosen because God foreknew those people. No. Now we understand how people get chosen by responding in faith. And so look at it. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So God foreknew those that will choose, that will respond. God foreknew those that would accept the invitation. So it's not as if God foreknew some people and chose them unconditionally. No, God foreknew those that would respond to the invitation. Hallelujah. Are we together? Does that make sense? Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So all many are called, but few are what? Chosen. And they are chosen based on their response to the invitation. So God knew. He foreknew them. Look at Romans chapter 8. So this makes a lot of sense with Romans chapter 8. Look at from verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So you see that he has already given us the context already. It is those that love him that he has called according to his purpose. So it's not as if... Um, the people that loved him are the people that he chose unconditionally. So those that loved him are the ones he calls, called according to his purpose. So that means that if you love him, that means that if you respond to his love, you know he said he loved us and then we loved him back, right? He loved us first and then we loved him in return. So those that have loved him, they are the ones that God has a special purpose for them. Verse 29. So he's, he's in that context. 
So he's talking about the people that loved him. So it's not a broad thing of God talking about the people that, let's go on, you see, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also was predestined to be conformed to the image of his what? son, that he might be the firstborn among what? Many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also was called. And those he called, he did what? Justified. And those he justified, he also was glorified. So he's talking about those that responded to the invitation. So it's not this scripture is not a treatise about God's entire scope of relation with human beings. This is not like John three sixteen. It's talking about people that saved. You know, talking about people that if you, if you read from the earlier part, it's talking about those that were already saved. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, no persecution. We are the ones that we have the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for us without um, with groanings that cannot be uttered, and all that, and all that. Do you see that? So he's talking about believers. So he's not saying about believers, right? That God foreknew that you'll be a believer. And because he foreknew, he had already planned that. So that predestination is pre-planned. You know, he had decided, he had made a way. He had pre-planned that you'll be conformed to the image of his son. That you might be among the first among many brothers. And because he had pre-planned for you to be conformed to the image of his son, he called you and then he justified you and he did what? Glorified you. It is not a comment on whether God picked some people unconditionally. It is an explanation of how God's working happens among those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when he says, all things work together for good, for them that love God and are called according to his purpose, he now begins to explain how God works things that together for good for those people. So the way God works things together for good for those people is that from the beginning of time he was already planning things for them. It is not a comment on whether God selects people unconditionally. Church all together. It's very simple. So it's not, um, when scriptures are read without the presupposition, your mind, your own, the idea of destiny and your own idea of um, foreknowledge and all that. If you just read the scripture, let scripture compare with scripture and interpret scripture, the pattern becomes very clear. And the problem will always be is God, can God truly be sovereign and can God um, truly be omniscient? Yes, in both cases. Yes. It is, it, is not, it is not strange that God has a hierarchy of values. It is not strange that God has priorities. It is not strange that God has put human agency above every other thing. Why? There is something that undergirds everything about what God has been doing. In humanity, and it is God's love. It's God's love. That is what primarily drives, that is who God is. It's his nature. God is love. That means God cannot be love, and there will be compulsion on free moral agents. It is incoherent. There cannot be any kind of compulsion. Love is removed in, immediately. God cannot be love and have limited atonement. And God cannot be loved and force us to love him back. So God in his sovereignty has decided that he would have a hierarchy of values in which man's agency is the first thing even before his salvation. So when we say that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of him, it is based on within the context of man's agency. Do you understand that? When we say God loves all men and wants all men to come to the knowledge of his will, God does not want any man to perish, but that all men, you know, he's long suffering so that any man can repent and can come to the knowledge of Christ. All those things are within the context. It's based on the assumption. It implies that all those men have free moral agency. 
There cannot be salvation if there is no free moral agency. Church all together. So who moves first? God moves first and man, can, man must also what? Respond. And man can choose not to respond and that's okay because God has moral agency. Hallelujah. Praise God. You know, so there are much deeper questions on this issue. Questions like people who were genuinely hampered in their ability to believe based on their situation in this world, right? People that were genuinely hampered. You know, psychiatric illnesses, being born in a pre-Christian era, being born in a post-Christian era, being born under certain kind of persecutions and all that and all that. Those questions translate to you know, eschatological questions. But the truth and the simple answer that will answer all of them is this. The same God that we say is love, who we say is love and is the one that has made everything the way it is, we can depend on that same nature of his. We can depend on his consistency. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forward, forever. We can depend on him to ensure that no man will be judged unjustly. So we don't know whether it's now or next year. What we shall know that there's nobody that will be eternally separated from God that will be there because of any kind of unjust sentencing or condemnation. Every man will receive God's righteous judgment. Every man. Every man. Hallelujah. Church out together. So, I think this... I think this is pretty clear. You know what we'll do? We'll have a question and answer time next next um, Wednesday. I think next Wednesday is the last day for this month. Yes. So next Wednesday we'll have um, a question and answer s- session on all these questions, so that we can you know understand this. So you guys should um, go this week with all these things in your mind, and um, let's address let's try and address the questions. You know next week. Um, Next week, Wednesday. So at least that will round up this series on who chose, who chose, um, who moves first, God or man. Praise God. So um, I think I think we've had a good time, right? Praise God. Can we bow down here and let's pray in the Holy Ghost? Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter. Facebook, and Instagram at this excellent church. God bless you.